We are here, episode 27 of the Post Post Podcast, where I talk to creative minds about their inspiring professional journeys. I'm your host, David Gidali, and today's guest is Oren Kaplan. He's a director. He does a lot of commercials, branded content, and narratives, including web series, pilots, and feature films. And uh, his most famous piece, I think, is something called House of Thrones. It was a mashup parody for Quiznos. Uh, it was very funny. It was kind of like House of Cards meets Game of Thrones with uh, a pretty impressive uh, performance by a Kevin Spacey impersonator. And it was so well received that Kevin Spacey himself tweeted it back in the day and it was seen millions of times. Shortly afterwards, he did something called Star Tourage, which was a similar mashup parody, a combination of Star Wars, which was just about to uh, be released back then, and the Entourage movie. It was also kind of a cool, fun little project, uh, and I was very lucky to help him out a little bit with visual effects. Had some pretty cool and uh, wild visual effects, which I uh, always love to do. So I feel very lucky to have him on a podcast, and I think it's a great one. We talked about his uh, backgrounds as a computer science engineer in Silicon Valley and how this engineering mind of him is influencing his approach to filmmaking, how he's kind of planning meticulously every time he goes on set and what a, a great impact it has on things. And of course, uh, his complete lack of fear when it comes to using technology uh, to improve his his creations, including visual effects. He's a self-taught visual effects artist as well, in both 2D and 3D software, and he keeps uh, testing out new technologies and just having fun with it uh, in his spare time. Uh, and also, he uses his engineering uh, approach to other things like his self-branding. Uh, very methodic and calculated. He creates these cool short videos that he puts on Instagram and Twitter that show kind of the process of how he makes his uh, his pieces, often by comparing side-by-side side the uh, final product and uh, some of his uh, planning phases like uh, previs or storyboards or whatever he had kind of put together to uh, plan the shootout. And uh, you can see when you look at those things that he's very well planned. The end results often match very closely with what he set out to do. And as someone that's been on set, I can also attest that he's very confident on set and he knows exactly what he wants and he has all the visuals to show and to demonstrate it. So his shoots are very fast and, and efficient and just a pleasure to see. He also has his own filmmaking podcast called Just Shoot It. And if you like my podcast, I'm sure you're going to love his podcast, maybe even more. I don't know. Anyway. Um, and also leading up to this podcast, I shared on uh, social media his directing reel, which I thought was really cool because it's sort of like a video essay about what to do and what not to do in director's reels, which is really funny and also serves, I think, him very well. It shows his sense of humor and also his knack for the deconstruction of the process and his analytic way of looking at things, which I think is really cool and sets him apart as a really unique and interesting director. Finally, I wanted to add that uh, this podcast was actually recorded on Zoom and we also had a video feed, so I was able to see him. I thought I might release it as the Post Post Podcast's first video podcasts if that's a thing i think on youtube um but because i didn't know how to use zoom i only got his side of the conversation visually and um i might release it at some point but i don't know for right now it feels a bit weird because all you see is him even though we kind of share equal amount of time on the microphone I didn't want it to look like he's just sitting there and waiting half of the time. So I'm probably going to hold off on releasing it until I have time to maybe edit it somehow. Also, there's there might be a little bit of sound issues because 
I think I wore the wrong headset and a little bit of his side of the dialogue bled into my mic. And because of Zoom, there's a little bit of a delay there, but it's very minor. You barely notice it. So I don't think that's an issue. And that's it. I can't wait to uh, begin the episode. So without further ado, I give you episode 27 of the Post Post Podcast. Oren Kaplan, welcome to the Post Post Podcast. Thanks. And this glad is, to be uh, here. I'm glad to have you here. I'm, I'm, I love your setup. I love the fact that we can see uh, the fact that you're not wearing any pants behind you. I'm wearing shorts. You are. Well, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's summer, pretty much. It is. Um, nice, uh, nice weather to go out. Unfortunately, not too much of that happening recently. Um, yeah. So... I wanted to have you on the podcast for a very long time, as you know, and I kept you uh, kept uh, talking about it and teasing uh, it, and uh, and I'm glad yeah. it's finally happening. From, from my perspective, <laughs> I feel like you talked to me about it when you were starting the podcast, because you know you were talking to a lot of directors and VFX artists and a lot of people that do both, and I think I'm probably much more of a director than a VFX artist. And then I started seeing the the guests that you got and potentially, this was my thinking, I could be totally wrong, you tell me if I was wrong, but I think maybe you realized that getting the top VFX artists in the business on a podcast is actually not that difficult to do. <laughs> and so you were getting these like A-list VFX artists, so I think maybe I just kind of went down and down on your list of, of that people. Is, that is very, very wrong, uh, and very, <laughs> <laughs> very inaccurate. Uh, no, I don't, I think... First of all, um, I, I think I only got a few that are at the top of their game. But I mean, it, it's uh, it's really a, there is no discrimination in the podcast, and also I don't think you know that you need to feel any you know anything uh, any less than they are. You know, I mean, the, in, in terms oh, no. of uh, in terms of I mean, talent and in terms of uh, <laughs> no, there's VFX artists. I mean, I know it. Too, you know, I have a podcast as well, and if I could get someone that directed a cool web series that all their friends and family liked and they won best director of the year at the Nebraska film festival. It's one thing. And if I can get someone that directed, you know, walking dead, I right. probably would lean towards them because I know that my listeners have watched walking dead. They understand walking dead. They get it. And there's just so much more context when we start our conversation than if I have to explain that this is a, a short film or this is a web series. And also, well, there, there is kind of an aspirational, I think, element to all these podcasts, right? Like your listeners, probably a lot of them are newer VFX artists or people that are trying to figure out how to navigate their VFX career. And so they talk to a VFX supervisor from Man in the High Castle. Right. And that's a place that they want to be at. They want to work on shows like that. And, and they're learning the tips and tricks and strategies, hopefully, from them. Um, maybe. Or am I, I mean, totally wrong? <laughs> I, like to, I like to think of my my audience as people who are not necessarily starting out um like and that's actually a good uh a good a good opportunity to kind of place place you within the context of the podcast and uh and my other guests because I, my the thing of the the focus on my podcast is not necessarily how uh 
successful someone is or how prevalent and and uh, and popular the the their work is uh, it's really about their trajectory and the fact that they've somehow found an, a way to uh, combine multiple passions into one fairly unique uh, professional trajectory right and in, in um, So when I had directors like Wes Ball, who directed, you know, feature, uh, feature trilogies yeah, and Runner. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah that's what um, I'm talking about. Wes Ball. Everyone knows Wes Ball. Yeah. I like well, to wear baseball caps. Was he exactly. wearing a hat when you interviewed him? Uh, he was. I could hear it in, uh, <laughs> on the in audio. I could hear it kind of rustling on, on his head. Um, hold on, I'm getting, as we're speaking, I'm getting uh, the monitor, my baby monitor, because <laughs> I'm also on baby duty tonight. Uh, here, nice, you want to nice. see? Uh, no, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. Ooh, I have that same monitor. It's the battery life is horrible, but hey, very cute baby. Upside down though. Is that he's a, upside down. Yeah. Not a visual <laughs> effect. To... No, it's not a visual effect. He's, he's got superpowers. He likes to. Uh... I mean, how many dads that work on VFX see the baby monitor and start thinking, man, that would be so easy to. do some effect on, on this super low quality black and white oh, night totally. vision video and make just scary shit happen all the time. I just, uh, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I feel bad for my wife. I don't want her to uh, have to have nightmares if I ever try to, you know, <laughs> it's a low hanging fruit and I think I'm just going to leave it hanging uh, yeah. for now. I've been Maybe. making these kind of creepy videos with my daughter who's four you years have, old. You have, you have, and I loved it. And actually I want so, so it's a good Good opportunity to continue on, on the on the <laughs> oh, yeah, <sorry>. <laughs> thought trail. The no, changes. it's totally fine because I'm gonna do it automatically. In fact, anytime you throw uh, throw a wrench at me, I'm probably gonna use that as an opportunity to go back to what I was trying to say because I'm gonna veer off subject quite a bit. Um, uh, but yeah, so uh, so it's not necessarily directors or visual effects artists, and my my uh, my audience is is comprised of a lot of visual effects artists as well, just because that's kind of my uh, Uh, your that, social circle my social circle uh, but a lot of them are not starting out and they're not listening to it in order to get you know to find inspiration or to find tips on how to you know achieve their go VFX goals it's actually more I think for people who are already you know neck deep in VFX and established who are trying to find ways to do Uh, to kind of expand beyond that which is why the, the name is the post post podcast kind of beyond right you figured out post what's next yeah exactly <laughs> yeah uh, and I, and when i said that earlier i didn't mean it as a <laughs> knock on your listeners i just meant that those people that you're talking about the people that are have worked at the mill or they're they've done a bunch of tv shots or do some big commercials they probably also don't want to hear about the kid that did this web show you, you know like They also want to hear about The Walking Dead or Man in the High Castle or Avatar. Like, yeah, uh, well, I think so. Or, but or I, even, yeah, I don't know. Even if someone is using Unreal Engine to make these photorealistic uh, background elements all of a sudden and maybe there's a new strategy or a new approach. I don't know. I guess, I guess all I'm saying is there's a certain level of expertise that one would expect from your podcast uh, that might not... be served by somebody who's brand new yeah but i don't think you know this is the case i think uh and and uh why don't you kind of uh 
present yourself uh, just briefly, or if you want, I can I can give you my sh- my uh, uh, your version, my version. Uh, but my version is probably not very accurate because I mean, there's so much about you're doing so much, honestly, that it's hard to follow. Uh, and uh, every time I think I, uh, every time I I remember how impressive your um, your output is beyond your job as a director for commercials and and uh, uh, brand and content and things like that is you know you have podcasts and you have these really cool social media bits where you show uh, breakdowns of what uh, of, of of how you oh, what's yeah, like your workflow is and and, yeah storyboards and animatics and and um, and now you have these cool kind of uh, little uh, kind of animation experiments that you're doing with uh, I believe it's is it Blender or is it still uh, Cinema 4D? And uh, I'm kind uh, of messing with everything. Today I actually downloaded Unreal Engine. I saw the same video ha, that you had posted this yeah. morning. And I oh know that it's the next version of Unreal Engine, but I know, uh, I've, I just see like Unreal Engine and Unity pop up a lot in these VFX circles. And I just want to know what, I, what I'm missing out on in terms of easy ways to make things. And I saw someone, well, so... Okay, uh, first I'll answer your question about like uh, me in a nutshell and right. what I do and who I am. And then I, I want to talk to you a little bit. I'll delve into the social media aspect of it because For sure. I've actually gotten really excited about what I am calling VFX Twitter <laughs> uh, recently. But so cool. I, well, my background is I have a degree in computer science and engineering. And I used to be an engineer. I worked in Silicon Valley and that was what I did right after college. But I went to UCLA. I was always like really into film watching and I loved commercials. As a kid, I'd like be cracked, you know, I'd always be cracking up at commercials and stuff. And I loved comedy and humor. And so even as I was an engineer, I was trying to make a lot of videos. When I went to college, Windows 98 second edition came out, which was the first Windows that let you edit mini DV tapes kind of without crashing after 10 seconds. Right. And so I just really got into editing. I got into cameras. And even as an engineer, even though I worked on the software end of things, everyone I worked with was really into optics and lenses and sensors and understanding how light and right. it can be digitized. Uh, and it's so sim- important for what we do, you know, for, for visual storytelling. I think, you know, optics and lights and all that, uh, uh, is something that I feel like a lot of filmmakers kind of take for granted. But but when you when you know a lot of visual effects artists, ironically, when they begin, there's a lot of basic information that is sometimes missing about optics and things like that. Like they know how to use After Effects, for instance, or Nuke or whatever it is. Uh, but there's sometimes there's a gap that I've noticed uh, when you know. Uh, there are weird gaps in a lot of places, and. It's never a bad thing. I've worked with so many directors that don't know what a lens looks like, but right. they're amazing directors. You know, they mm-hmm. can reach into the depths of their emotional selves and tell a moving story with one shot where the camera's not moving. You know, yeah. there's so many interesting things. But uh, I, I've worked as a director, I work a lot with storyboard artists and half the storyboard artists I work with don't know lenses at all. Like I'll say, you know, I kind of imagine this like on a 50 millimeter lens, like a medium close up just to try to describe the perspective and the depth of field to them. And they're like, I don't know what a 50 millimeter lens is. Just tell me <laughs> how big the person right. should be in the shot. Exactly. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so back to being an engineer, the whole time I was really kind of itching to make videos when I was in 
in Silicon Valley. And even when I was at UCLA, I was an extra on a bunch of TV shows. I was an extra on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and oh, Seventh really? Heaven and all these TV shows. And I just fell in love with seeing the dollies, the steady cams, all the machinery. You know, the engineering of the filmmaking really excited me. Did you so, grow up in LA or in, in California? Or? Uh, as a young child, I lived in Israel. And then I went to high school in Orange County. And then I went to UCLA. So as long as I've been in the States, I've been in California. In Alpha. Okay, cool. What, what, what age did you move? Six. Oh, my wife yeah, moved so when she I, was five. A long time ago. Yeah, around the same time. So I went yeah. to second grade in uh-huh. California. Um, but uh, so when I was an engineer, I was like, you know what? I want to try this Hollywood thing and I'm going to save up a certain amount of money. I said, I'm, as an engineer, single, just doing my thing, I was like, if I can save up $100,000 in cash in my bank account, the second I get that, reach that number, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to move to LA. And I wanted to have money in the bank because I wanted to not have to be desperate and resort to, you know, getting a restaurant job or a bartender job or anything like that. Not that any restaurants or, or bars in LA would actually hire me. Uh, I hey, don't underestimate that. yourself. You can always, especially, oh, no, I, especially now with Corona and everything, I'm sure uh, <laughs> yeah. at least for... In deliveries and stuff, you'll find work. <laughs> oh, yeah, delivery work. But back then, yeah, there was, was pre-Uber, pre-Postmates. Yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to have money. And then when I moved to L.A. with a few other people I knew, met in San Francisco and kind of the film scene there, and then just started making YouTube videos and it, whatever. It, eventually, I an- ended up at Disney where I met uh, Tal, your right. partner, like at Outpost cousin. VFX. Your cousin slash partner. Slash partner. And... Yeah. And the whole time I was really into making videos, you know, whatever that involved, directing, writing, editing, visual effects. I loved After Effects ever since college. And so uh, I worked at Disney for a while. I did a bunch of Wait, so, so shows. How did, you, how did you get to work for Disney? Like what's, what was your, you know, move from, from being kind of, I mean, anybody can make videos at home. I don't know when you started, if, if it was as easy How did easy I go from to, YouTube to Disney? Yeah. Yeah. Or even to YouTube. Like, what was your, you know, first? Well, YouTube, I just made videos and uploaded them to YouTube. But. Oh, yeah. YouTube uh, didn't didn't, uh, approve you? (laughs) No, no. I mean, this is way, this is 2006 or something, before the partner program or anything. No, I mean, I meant in terms of like, okay, so what did you do, for instance, on YouTube? Like, what was your first uh, foray into filmmaking? For someone who's. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I really liked visual tricks, you know? So. I kind of did very, you know who Zach King is? The um, Vine magician, yeah, Fine, yeah, yeah. Final Cut Pro Kings, right. had many names on social media. Mm-hmm. I did stuff like what he does. I took, I noticed that a pumpkin we had looked exactly like a basketball. So I had my roommate, you know, bounce a basketball a couple times and then slam it on the ground. And then we had him slam the pumpkin on the ground the and we'd just do a cut from the pumpkin to the, you know, yeah. and make it look like the basketball exploded like a pumpkin. Uh, then... Uh, we did, you know, I, my friends and I made a music video where everyone was in their underwear. And then in post, I just blurred it and colored it skin color. So it looked like everyone was naked and, you know, various dumb viral yeah. videos like that at the time that turns into a viral video. We made it into a fake commercial uh, and little sketches and things. My roommates were both actors, but ultimately I ended up meeting uh, this girl through my roommate's. They were all on the same improv team at uh, UCB. Yeah. And she was an actress and she was on some MTV show. Uh, it was called 
Nick Cannon's Wild and Out. And she had a, her manager was Naomi Odenkirk, who's Bob Odenkirk's wife. Oh, wow. And she was pretty connected in the industry. And she, uh, this girl I knew had pitched a show to this new network called Super Deluxe. It was Turner owned it and they were going to do web shows. And she sold this show to them. And the director of that show backed out a week before. And this is, you know, when I say show, I mean, five minute episodes, something like 10, five minute episodes, right. total budget like $50,000 or something, <laughs> you know, low, really low budget. But I begged her to let me direct it. And she had seen all my YouTube videos and I had done also some like CPR training videos. And I made a commercial for my aunt's company, <laughs> just really tiny little things. Right. A and she got, she, she talked to her manager, Naomi. She said, Oh my, you know, Oren wants to direct it. He's done all these cool things and they let me do it. And so and, you know, that was like we shot on the DVX 100, but I got real DPs that I had met. I had also worked as a grip and an electrician, um, all these USC guys. Yeah. Uh, and we got a good cast because she was in Groundlings and knew people through her manager and stuff. Um, her manager, like Derek Waters, do you know that guy? He made the show Drunk History. Yeah, I know uh, Drunk History, he, but I don't. I don't know. Him, He's like the main drunk history guy. He was in all our stuff. All these people that we met through Naomi. So we had this awesome cast. And then Turner really liked the show that turned out. So they, I pitched two more shows to them and we made those. And off of those shows, someone at Disney saw them. And then I got a meeting with them. Uh, and then I worked at Disney. So that's cool. That's, I mean, yeah. I think, I you think know, the lesson, baby steps. quick lesson is just, you know, but, you know, before doing those steps, you have to work, you know, you have to just kind of go, go out of your comfort zone and make those videos happen. You know, nobody's, and especially, oh, yeah. and I did every yeah. crew position. I PA'd, I boom up, I, which by the way, I think boom up is the best position to learn anything about filmmaking because you're right by the actors, you're right by right. the directors, you hear yeah. everything. It's super easy. It's really hard to mess up. Um, so yeah oh i've seen I, I i've seen people everything. mess it up trust me <laughs> i've seen people mess it up but it's it is uh i mean I, and i did it myself a few times and i actually took pride in you know being smart about where to place the boom and and how to get that uh oh yeah boom ops that don't understand lighting are infuriating to yeah me. exactly because that is literally you have two jobs one is to get the <laughs> microphone as close to the actor as possible Two right. is to not block a light. <laughs> like, don't cast a shadow. Yeah, totally. I remember, uh, I have this vague memory from when I was in film school, and I think we saw some behind-the-scenes, like, featurettes of, uh, I believe it was Fight Club or something like that. And I remember this, for some reason, that popped out to me, that, uh, that uh, I don't know, some dialogue scene. And you had two boom-ups standing, I don't know, like, 15 feet away, holding these giant, you know, super long um, boom poles, from two different sides and for some reason that stuck out to me is this is a professional production like if you have two boom ops standing with those long poles then it's a professional production so um so boom I, i'll always kind of have this sort of uh uh you know uh of of uh, of uh, respect for long boom poles for some yeah weird have you ever uh, been to a sitcom rec recording or snl or anything I, like I, yeah i have once yeah. They do. They have a mate. They usually have two boom ops and they're controlling yeah. their booms just like you control a camera with the, uh, the wheels and stuff. It's insane. I don't know uh, why I love the, 
you know, I, I just love the whole apparatus and, and the whole um, sort of uh, like project of, of, of being on set. You know, like people at work, I, I find set, you know, behind the scene photographs are always super fun to watch and to take. I mean, if, if I could choose like a job to be on set if on downtime that I would really enjoy, it's just to be a set uh, photographer. Because, oh, yeah. because there's so much, uh, you know, I mean, especially on a, on a good kind of positive production, but even on a pretty shitty, you know, shit show, or whatever, with where, where things kind of, that, yeah. that's even, even more satisfying. But just, you know, having all that machinery around you and people that are super, you know, focused and, and every person does their own thing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap in terms of responsibilities, but still also these kind of very uh, broad and uh, unique kind of perspective. But I don't know, I personally find it uh, enjoyable just being, you know, being on set, especially, you know, obviously directing and, and, uh, and being at the helm of, of, uh, of a production like that and being the person, you know, that, that one person that everybody comes to for, uh, you know, for, for direction and for, uh, and to put things in, in, in context, uh, which is Mm -hmm. what I usually, you know, I mean, I've directed a few things myself and I just remember, um, thinking before I've done some bigger projects, uh, you know, there's always this kind of imposter syndrome and you're thinking, well, you know, I went to film school and everything and I did these shorts and stuff, but am I really ready to direct a feature or am I really ready to direct a union thing or am I really, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, and the answer is yes. Yeah. And <laughs> actually, I think the director could be the least experienced person on set and it's yeah. still kind of okay. Yeah, you just totally. have to, the only thing a director really needs to be good at, in my opinion, <laughs> is working under pressure. Right. And, and obviously being decisive, which is the main requirement. Yeah, totally. Being a director. And it doesn't even make it matter if you're making good decisions, <laughs> as long as you're making decisions. Yeah. I mean, it's better if you make good decisions, but... Um, but right, yeah. it, it's better, but, it, but you're right. I think, you know, it's key to just to not crack under pressure, to, to have, to make decisions and to stick to them, uh, to be um, persistent. And uh, once you, you know, once you made a decision not to roll back on it, uh, I mean, you can, and I'm sure some directors do, uh, or you know they take. Yeah, I think as a VFX uh, artist, you've probably met a few directors that change their mind on occasion. Yes, I do, and I think that's definitely the fact that I'm a VFX person gives me a lot of insight into what I was would otherwise be doing wrong as a director. You know, like or uh, what what type of workflow works you know well for other people. You know, to be on the on the receiving end of things and. Uh, you know, I've definitely seen directors without that experience who are excellent at giving direction and they're always on point and they never roll back on their decisions. And I've seen directors without that experience or I've seen directors with that experience that are doing the worst uh, possible sort of mistake of constantly changing and uh, and, uh, and second-guessing themselves. Um, but I do think that it's uh, that having that experience is really... Uh, you know, has given me a, you know, a lot of insight towards that. And so for you, I, I was, first of all, I think it's, it's very inspiring, you know, just the way you started kind of 
uh, taking a break from, so you've already made kind of one career leap, which is hard enough. I think a lot of people uh, are, you know, still in their uh, electrical engineering or, uh, you know, whatever first career that they, that they came out of uh, college with and, uh, and are thinking about how to make that first step. And you make it seem so easy just because it happened so long ago and it, uh, well, I do uh, think it's easy, and I'll tell you why. It, look, it's difficult if you have a family and you are trying to make ends meet, and a lot of people are relying on you. But if you people aren't relying on you, there will never be a time in this world while we're alive that engineers are not in demand. Right. Uh, I think in, in America, especially, there is a shortage of really great American engineers. One of our biggest imports is engineers from other countries because there aren't enough people interested in engineering. There's nothing, there's all these STEM things going on and people are trying to make engineering seem cooler. But take the coolest people you know, how many of them studied computer science, math, engineering, physics? You know, the, right. the, the, it's, it's not a glorified profession here in the United States. And so we don't have enough architectural engineers, civil engineers, aerospace engineers, computer engineers. I mean, the entire world runs on computers. Every right. single thing, you know, that you do is based, is computerized in some way. So all, all that to say, if you're an engineer, it's very easy to say, you know what, I'll quit engineering. And if I, it doesn't work out, I'll go back to engineering. Right. Yeah. There's never, it's not like, a, a film career, which is so different, even in VFX, which is a much more technical side of the film industry, I'm sure you're competing for jobs. And if uh, you know Netflix comes to you and they say, "Hey, we want you to do this title sequence or this, these promos for our show," and they're giving you the budget, and you think, "Oh, that budget is like really low," you have a fear that if you say no and they go to another company and they like them, then they'll never come back to you. In right. engineering, there's never, that isn't a thing. There's no fear of not having a job or not having work or how are you going to pay your employees or whatever because it's just the most interesting, useful yeah. thing to, to be able to do. It's interesting, even, but I'm sure, you, you know, as a, as a VFX artist, when I, uh, to, to your point about being, you know, worrying about a client moving to someone else, which is a real worry, which is part of the reason why I keep at it, uh, for a while, I've been trying to 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 kind of sway away from. Don't tell that to my client, but um, <laughs> I've been trying to uh, uh, to sort of fully switch to directing for the last probably twelve years or so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, every time I I you know I try to 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 do more and more directing, but it's but the momentum is really tough to maintain. You know, I don't know uh, if, you know, probably doing something wrong because I've tried it many times and, you know, I've gotten uh, these kind of false starts, I guess. Um, but we can talk about that l a little bit more later, you know, as we talk about, you know, you know your path as well. Um, but, uh, um, but as far yeah. as like worrying about you know, I mean, there's always going to be. Yeah, I mean, I I, th I think as far as an engineer engineering goes, you know, you work usually for a company. So I guess what you're saying is you're going to find work if it's not in this company, it's going to be some other company or something. Yeah, you know, even if you're a freelancer. Be... I mean, how yeah. many friends of yours have great app ideas? You know, yeah, like exactly. that will pay someone a few thousand dollars to develop right. their app. Yeah, 
And so that's kind of the the dumb version of it. But if you go to Silicon Valley, and Silicon Valley is the Hollywood of tech, right? right? And now there's Silicon Alley, there's New York, there's Irvine, there's all these places around the country, Austin, that are great for technology. You could just say, hey, I'm available. I know C Sharp or C++ or front-end JavaScript, whatever you know. And people will say, okay, does 150 grand a year work for you? Sorry, it's low. You know, like (laughs) that's that's literally what engineering is like. Uh, And so... You know, I think other other disciplines in engineering, maybe in aerospace, there's some places where you have a few less options of jobs. Right. But still, I think I think almost every type of engineer knows how to program, and programming is can get you a job anywhere, even in VFX. Oh yeah, totally. You know? um, and so, okay, so you're saying it wasn't as easy as it might be for other people. You didn't have a family. You're already in a in a in a in a profession that is easy to sort of fall back on kind of like your safety Mm -hmm. safety have you ever considered after you moved uh after you started doing the switch going back or was it never did never come up no because i just really enjoyed the filmmaking part of it i just loved it and this isn't a knock i love engineers i love the way engineers think i love the conversations i've had with engineers but when you are working in the film industry you just get to work with way more people, you know, yeah. and way more interesting people and a more bigger variety of types of people and kind of the smartest people in the world, the most emotional people in the world, the best looking people in the world, the craziest people in the world. It, you are working with people that are, are only succeeding because they have something interesting to say right. or they have a unique skill because it's such a competitive industry that uh, I just find it more exciting to work with people than to work with machines. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, plus, it seems like, you know, it, it's if you say it was about a year before, you know, from when you started making YouTube videos till you started working kind of on a regular basis with for a big company and directing content and stuff, um, then... Uh, yeah. I guess it was about a year. But I, I mean, I the first thing I did when I moved to L.A. is I went on Craigslist and took every free job that there was. And I say this on my podcast all the time, but it's true. Like, literally, after you do four free jobs, you probably never have to do another free job again, no matter what crew position. If you're a PA, if you're a grip, if you're an electrician, if you're a camera operator, VFX artist, if you are work hard and do your best, then people will hear about you. And I'm not saying you're going to get rich right. immediately, but people will give you a hundred bucks a day to be a PA because you're a really good PA or people, or even if you don't know what you're doing, but you're really right. learning and improving. Anyone smart, I think can make a living in Hollywood and they have to be ambitious too. Yeah. <laughs> and not complain too much. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's no excuses to, you know, and nobody, there's no excuse to not, you know, going out and trying and, and starting to just do it and, and be involved in production, especially when you live in LA and you're so exposed to it. Um, yeah. But it is, I, as I get older, <laughs> I do realize that it's a much easier for young people and it's much easier for people without families to get started. Once you, you are a little established, even if it's doing indie films, short, like small end things, once you have a network in LA, yeah, then it's not as hard if you have a family and other things. But when you're first starting out, 
it's just very helpful to meet as many people as you possibly can, which is hard if you have kids. Right. Though I will say, and you have a 14 month old, I have a four year old. I have a I was introduced to an entirely new network of film people when my daughter started preschool oh, here cool. in Silver Lake. <laughs> yeah, like Makes every sense. parent in my daughter's class works is somehow related to the entertainment industry. That makes so, total sense. Yeah. Well, it's cool. It's got, how old is your daughter now? Four or yeah, four. Cool. So she's been. This is her second year of preschool. Okay. We'll see if we'll see if it starts up again before. Uh, yeah. the quarantine is over or not or before you know next year it used to be dating uh that uh sometimes introduced you to uh to me i mean to to visit to uh people in the business even though by far the smartest thing i did when i moved out here was to move as a student to a film school and uh oh yeah, yeah i mean that no... is the value of film school right yeah because you're forced to build this network of people that are actually uh, motivated to succeed in film. Yeah. They have to pay off their film school debt. Totally, without a doubt. Uh, plus, I've learned a lot, too. I mean, it was a good uh, good school. Where did you go? Good teachers. AFI. Oh, AFI. Yeah. It's an okay school. Okay, um, school. Yeah, you um, know, it's not, it's not what it used to be. <laughs> yeah, it's no Cal State Fullerton, but yeah, no. just kidding. <laughs> I don't think Cal State Fullerton has a film program. If they do, I'm sorry. Um, but it's yeah, funny. No, it, I've been. Awesome. I, I've also been to uh, not not to blow to to toot my horn. It's actually the opposite of what I was going to say. I was in the Air Force in Israel. I was a flight cadet when I was 18. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, being in in the Air Force in Israel is you know there's not there's not much more you know than that in terms of like uh, getting you know street cred when you talk about what you know you've you've accomplished but the funny thing is it's it doesn't matter how far you get and how how high you get the moment you're there you always you know you always look at it and be like they accepted me i guess there's something wrong with that you know like that's yeah um, groucho marx quote exactly uh i refuse right to get to to join the club that will accept me as a member um and I, I remember, I mean, that quote, when I read it, I was like, that's me. That's like how my brain works totally, completely. Um, but now it's yeah. also well, like... Well, if it makes uh, you feel any better, I got rejected from AFI two years in a row. So um, so they don't accept everyone. <laughs> and you <laughs> know, and the funny thing is, yeah, I mean, I and I... I know a lot of people who are way beyond me that have the same... <laughs> like, are way more successful and reached, you know way way more uh, accomplishments in in the field you know that that I'm trying to get to that are that still kind of walk around with this morbidity or this kind of little not morbidity but this uh, this kind of pet yeah and bitterness pet bitterness is like you know I wasn't accepted that what are you talking about like you've gotten so <laughs> yeah so far away well I'll tell but, you yeah. I think so I applied to AFI and NYU and I got interviews at both and that they're both graduate programs, yeah. which I think are very different than undergraduate. And I, I do believe that those schools are trying to, uh, to help new voices, and they don't want to, they don't want the entire cast, the entire class, to be the same twenty-five-year-old white Jewish guy, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I do think that I, when I came, I was. 
very much even even when i was at disney and before that youtube and stuff my bread and butter was parodying right doing parodies i was just copying other people like i had nothing original to say and i think even though i was very excited and technically proficient and i'd made some cool shorts that or viral videos and some things that had played to film festivals when i went and i interviewed with those schools they looked at me as something they've just seen a million times mm. and i think that what is good about those schools is they manage to bring together different points of view. And I think yeah. I, one of the things I did not realize when I first moved to LA is that having a point of view even mattered. I just knew that I could copy what other people had done, <laughs> you know? And so, and so that, that's kind of, I'm not bitter about if I, I, if I was them, I wouldn't have taken me either, but they are fairly competitive. I, I would say. I had a, I think there was something, I think what I didn't get accepted to AFI as well. I believe it was two years. The first year I tried, I didn't get accepted at all. The second, and I didn't really have much for, you know, to, to show, like to, to apply with anyway. Like, I think I applied with like a, a, a VFX reel or something, you know, stupid like that, you know, with, with some, mm -hmm. with some work there, I think the, the only thing that was, I kind of directed that was narrated with, it was literally just an animatic of like a little short that I, drew and put together so i sent it to them and of course they didn't even look you know they didn't even bother looking my way and i and i got rejected right away second time was uh after uh first after second year of, uh, of film school um it actually applied with stuff that i did in the first year um it was actually a documentary that i did that uh that they liked, even though they don't teach doc, they don't have a documentary uh, track there. Um, but uh, but when I applied originally, they didn't accept me, um, and uh, I wasn't even you know they give you like a green or or, or yellow or red kind of thing. Like there's like a, a yes no and a That's maybe. Yeah, basically yes yes no maybe. Uh, and mm -hmm. I wasn't even in the maybe. I wasn't even like in the in the waiting list. I was like flat out no. Um, and then, and, and, a, and a colleague of mine from the same film school that I went to in Israel, who also applied, but she was like four years, she was two years or three years ahead of me in school. She did like really impressive short films that really looked good. And she had a, definitely had a, her own voice and was very original. Um, she, she also got accepted, but apparently she decided, she didn't, she decided to go to Colombia instead uh for whatever reasons and um and the moment she you know i don't i don't want to say that you know those two things are connected but somehow miraculously when she notified them that she's moving you know that, that she's probably not going to do the year at afi she's going to go to columbia instead i was uh contacted two or three weeks before uh the beginning of the school year and uh was invited to come in anyway even though i was like not even like they basically told me the waitlist wait wow. wait was short. We decided to, you know, we, we, you would reach the Israel name. spot is open. Yes. They're like, the, fine. You can give us <laughs> exactly. $100,000. We will take it. Yeah, totally. Uh, earn that privilege. Yeah, no, well, that's cool. That's yeah. AFI is awesome. I, I wish I would have gone to film school. I do think I would be 
in a different place. And I actually worked with a lot of AFI people at UCL at Disney. Yeah. And it's because I my I had a friend that went to AFI, and so I I was a boom op on many AFI student films, and I was a Dolly group, and I loved the Dolly. I loved booming and crabbing and you know doing those combination moves and all that stuff, and right. just really looking at the camera work, looking at the lights. I mean, you uh, learn so much. It's it's you know incredible. There's no doubt. Yeah, yeah. And some of those AFI shorts are. I mean, the budgets are like bigger than any commercial. I've oh, had. totally. Not any commercial, but you know that they're, they're the those people are very into getting cool toys. Those people right. being AFI students. So, so to to listeners who have been for the last twenty or twenty minutes or so wondering what we're talking about, AFI is short for the American Film Institute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone and, uh, that listens yeah. to this knows what AFI is. By now they do, if they've listened to previous episodes, because I mention it probably quite a bit. Um, but yeah, so you haven't gone, uh, you haven't gone to film school. I can tell you that when I was on set with you, uh, we we worked together on this thing called Star Tourage, uh, which was yeah. uh, a delight. I actually Star Wars meets Entourage. Yeah, yeah, and and by <laughs> Why not? by the time you reached out to me about it, I've already been. I've already been exposed to that awesome viral, um, was it game house of Thrones? No, it was yeah, house, house of Thrones. House of, house, yeah, of house of cards meets game of Thrones. Yeah. So it was like this, this really awesome viral, um, um, mashup ad. Yeah. What should we bring it? Should we put it on? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Uh, um, we, we no. can't, no, we don't have to. It's up to you. I feel uh, like, well, a lot of people. It was great at the time. Most people are probably going to listen to it anyway uh, in audio form. So uh, I'll say, as I always do, there's going to be, it's probably going to be in the show notes and in, in the website, in the podcast website, if they want to, or they can just yeah. look you up at the end of the episode. You'll you'll uh, mention your presence, your online presence, and they can look you up and find it. Yeah, um, directed by Oren.com. And yeah, totally. Plug it now and plug it at the end as well. And I'll so. plug it again later. Yeah. And my podcast too. Just shoot it. Exactly. Just shoot it podcast. Just shoot it podcast. Um, and and uh, and I was I was really impressed by the by the mashup uh, video. I don't know how it came to me, but it was it felt like it was everywhere at the time. Everybody was talking about it. It was really well made, really well produced. Well, Kevin Spacey, who was not a villain at the time, <laughs> tweeted it right. out. Yeah, I, I guess I I would give a piece of advice if you're trying to get in, you're you're making the YouTube videos and trying to get attention. Parody stuff is just so easy to get seen. If yeah. you do, you know, at the time we were doing Harry Potter parodies, Twilight parodies, Star Wars parodies, because there's already such a hunger for content right. around that stuff that, uh, you know, now Marvel stuff, probably Avengers parodies, things like that. Uh if you can tap into this, you know, pre-existing fan base, totally. then it's, and with VFX, it's really fun too, because you are a lot of what you're, what we did with Star Taraj, what you did is we made all these uh, Star Wars-esque right. spaceships and shuttles and things that are, would fit into our world. So the premise of Star Taraj was, so we made this when the Entourage movie came out and right. the, premise of the Entourage movie is that Adrian Grenier's character uh, gets to direct this big movie because, uh, you know, for no good reason, because he's a famous actor, right. so they're just going to give him millions <laughs> of dollars, to $100 million to make this movie, and it's a totally dumb movie, and Ari, his agent, who's played by Jeremy Piven, is pissed off at him. Um, and then we knew there was a new Star Wars coming, J you know, Star Wars J. J. had been Abrams, rebooted and yeah. stuff. 
And so we thought it would be funny if we did a parody of the Entourage movie. And at the time, it seemed like they were giving anyone who wanted to direct Star Wars, <laughs> Star Wars. Like Gareth Edwards had one, Josh right. Trink was going to do one, all these random people that had made one good movie before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we thought it would be funny. Let's do the parody where the guy from Entourage, Adrian Grenier's character, gets to direct a Star Wars. And how would the guy from Entourage make a Star Wars? And of course... You know, every alien is sexy and every they're driving these cool classic cars that are, you know, Floaty, flying around. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Ari is yelling at everyone and there's stormtroopers and all that, all the stuff that is so obvious. Right. But I remember. Yeah. And that was yeah. before, <clears throat> before Miss 2059, right? Before you did. Yes. Because we yes. work. Yeah. That was, again. that was just, yeah. that was not too long after that, that we did the Miss uh, 1959. 2059. Yeah. Um, I just remember uh, the budget was so low. It wasn't even. It wasn't even a factor. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it, it wasn't even a, even a factor at the time. I mean, it just it was such a fun premise, and uh, and I brought in. I was just doing this uh, this uh, spec doritos commercial with uh with a friend of mine mm, i actually with that monster with the monster yeah and and the mon- the designer the guy who designed the monster was a friend uh someone that i actually just found online when i was working on on that show i, j- I actually i looked at some references for monsters because i was uh being helped by a friend of mine and um and i was kind of collecting those references to send over to him and one of the references i saw i don't know just you know click on the name of the of the artist who did something that i really liked and i looked at his uh uh blog page or something and and it's it says that it was in pasadena and i was like hey i i live in la now so in pasadena is right around the corner uh i'll give him a call and i did and it turned out it was like a 21 year old uh like you know brilliant uh designer who is still in in art school uh and uh he, he was studying at art center i mean he left pretty pretty soon after and he became you know a uh you know very very successful uh character and and just concept artist he works for a big video game company right now um but he was totally like down and, and we did the monster in like two weeks and he helped and he didn't just you know design it also sculpted it in zbrush and ported it to i i did the uh the character setup and everything but uh it was a real kind of cool fun project we did together and then right off after that you came to me with uh the star tourage concept and i came to him with that and he was totally you know on board to help out with all the uh, we had a few original it's quote unquote original uh vehicles right. inspired by the Star Wars. Yeah, inspired by the Star Wars thing. Uh, I remember with you, I would say like, hey, I found this awesome model on Turbo Squid. Just use that. And, you, and you're, you're always like, eh, I'm not just going to use the Turbo Squid model. Like, I'm, I'm willing to start maybe with that as a base, but we got to make our own thing. Yeah. We got to change it. <laughs> this isn't, we're going to, I got a guy. He, he's yeah. getting it. He's going to make something awesome. Don't worry. Yeah, no, um, it's fun. And I like, I mean, that's, that's the attitude I like to start on any project. You know, it's like, uh, I do it because I want to, because it's a, an exciting concept and especially in the case of this of, of star Tourage and other things that you do um you know the sillier things are and i always it's like that monster that doritos monster thing i mean it, it wouldn't have excited me as much to do something with a monster like that unless it was a really ridiculous concept that most that i know a lot of people would just be like why the hell did you 
want to do that you know like the doritos monster thing was a monster basically eating a kid it was kind of a it was starting out as a as a homage to uh uh et you know and and the kid is like mm-hmm. trying to befriend the monster and that's what it ends up being jaws with the monster eating uh the kid um why would you do something like that you know if we're in a, in a doritos commercial it's it's there's no way right. on earth we would ever win the doritos challenge doing that you know um but it's kind of like that that question and the fact that I'm doing it anyway and I'm putting so much effort into it and I'm really like, you know, losing nights uh, sleep over that. Uh, for some reason, excites me sometimes. So I don't know. It's like uh, the more ridiculous the task is, I get more uh, satisfaction from uh, pursuing it in, in, you know, the most vigorous uh, way sometimes. Yeah, it's probably worth mentioning that that Startraj project we did together was paid for by Quiznos. Right, it yeah. was a It was a branded... Uh, parody yeah so yeah it, that that makes it like even one level more ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's for a sandwich totally no and and i mean i i definitely sort of knew who i'm working with because seeing what you did with uh house of thrones i knew you're not just you know coming up with this crazy script or something you know what you're what you're going for and and you have the know-how to do it i mean you've done some of the best shots in, in Sartorage you did. You know, sometimes I show the work and everybody's like, oh, I love that uh, BB-8 uh, reference there. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, that was fun. That was not me, but <laughs> director. Um, uh, yeah, I love, I freaking, that was when I discovered, it's called Sybil. Uh, I forget what it stands for, but it was, it's this free environment. It was kind of before PBR, was yeah. big before everyone used HDRI, but it was this plugin for Cinema 4D that let you just load up these environments that were all free, these HDRI environments, and you didn't have to light it all. You just right. point where the sun is, and it was practically photorealistic. I mean, this was, again, before everything was like GI oh, yeah. rendered and all that stuff. But um, yeah, I did another parody called The Waze Runner, which is The Maze Runner. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I the saw West that. Ball movie. Yeah, but uh, the kids are—they all have ways, and they're trying to escape the maze by using ways. You know the navigation app, and it's just telling them to turn left in places that you can't even possibly make a left turn. And it's while while they're running away from monsters, they're trying to change the navigation, and it's telling them, you know, you can't change the navigation while you're running unless you hit passenger. Like all these. So, did you do all the VFX on that yourself, or? Yeah, so for that one, I had discovered this free Cinema 4D plugin that grew, that was, I think it was called like C4D Ivy or Vines or something. It made these like really cool looking vines that you could, you basically just select a wall in a trajectory and you put in a few parameters and it would grow vines on surfaces. Oh, nice. And so I was just really excited to use that. Well, so. funny, because that's kind of I why, uh, I mean, Wes Ball, who did who directed the actual Maze Runner, also started out doing the visual effects. And actually, the, the, the short film that everybody knows him for is uh, Ruin, or the short film that Rush? kind of, it's oh, Ruin. Ruin. Ruin yeah. um, and that also had a lot of, a lot of vines in it and, and all those kind of growth and things. And, and I think he kind of also contributes or attributes the fact that he did that to the to this tool that he found. I think he used Modo uh, for some mm-hmm. of the 3D uh, modeling there. Um, 
And I think it also started with him kind of discovering this cool sort of scatter tool that le- that allows him to put vines on everything, and that inspired him to kind of create this world and then do this short. And you know, so I mean, that short is pretty damn good. <laughs> vines that aside, short is but yeah, is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I remember watching it when it came out, and I, and I'm I think I'm appreciating it even more seeing it now after all these years than I, than I have when it came out. You know, because I mean. Yeah, it was yeah. just uh, really no, it's mind-blowing. It's really well done. Um, so There was, oh, I, I was just going to say, yeah. when I worked at Disney, my boss there said to me something that what he liked about me was that I was very inspired by technology. Yeah. My creativity was inspired by technology. And he said, uh, he was like, it's like a very James Cameron thing. You know, James Cameron made Avatar because he found this new technology he wanted to play with. right. Uh, and I do think, especially knowing there's a lot of VFX artists or VFX interested people that are into this podcast, I think that that is a real fun way into a story and into a movie is like, Hey, I got this tool that makes vines. What's a story that works with vines and knowing, uh, approaching a story from the, the fun tools you're excited to work with is what will keep you motivated when the going gets tough. I think. Yeah. Totally. So just a just a thing that I, I find exciting. That me too. I'm, and I'm really excited now by by everything by that freaking Unreal video that you posted. It just today. came out today. I mean, I've when I opened up Facebook, it was a, it, it was almost like there was no other post except this. Every person <laughs> right. I know in my Facebook feed was posting about it. I was like, well, I'm going to share it too. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, I can't even. Uh, Imagine. Yeah. Well, nowadays with Cycles and with Arnold and with Blender yeah. and with uh, um, Octane and all these renderers that literally with three clicks, you have a photorealistic yeah. thing and all these libraries of materials and pre-made objects. It's like, it, it makes me wonder if every shot I've ever shot is too small. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, you see these breakdowns and you think wow, I could have made the this just feel way bigger right. for, for not a lot of money, you know, all in post. Yeah. Um, I find it intimidating sometimes. I'm like, there's so many amazing tools out there. I don't want to make anything because I know it's not going <laughs> to take advantage of all these cool things. Well, do, you, do you follow this guy? I think it's, his name is Matt Workman or something. Um, he... He kind of plays around a lot with uh, virtual sets using Unreal Engine. Is he the... Cinema DB guy? Yeah, no. I think so. No, oh, yeah. is it? Yeah, he's creating like a tools for also for previs. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I've seen him. Yeah, and isn't EV the Blender render engine kind of based on all those gaming engines? That same kind of OpenGL type. It of, seems like it. Open I mean, CL. from what I've played with, it seems totally you know like it's a totally a real time kind of game game like uh, engine. Um, yeah, and even Element 3D, which. I feel like was this kind of motion graphics plugin that now I, I use it all the time just to throw in a quick 3D object into something. Like I'll take it from Cinema 4D and bring it into Element and it's just so quick and easy. You know, you know I, I, I actually know. have never I kind of it. dived into it, uh, into Element. I mean, I used it maybe once or twice in, in, in some cases and I loved it. I thought it was great. It was just a bit slow for me and I felt like the weird, the, I felt like I was kind of, 
copying the, the, the effect onto different layers to get more objects in and stuff like that. I was not using it right for sure. So that's far. Um, so that might be one of the reasons that I never yeah. like got out of it. And, and it's always been so natural for me to just open 3d studio max and, you know, do, uh, have so much control over animation there and, and, uh, and, you know, just elements from what I remember is kind of, is a bit, when I used it, it was a bit, uh, limited in terms of the whole scene setup, you know, of, of more than one object yeah. and having them interact with, 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 with each other and having uh, dependencies and stuff like that, like creating a rig for instance, or creating, um, right. But it's kind of like a two and a half D solution. If yeah. you subscribe to, the Gareth Edwards philosophy of as do as much as you can in 2d. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, then element is just this awesome tool. If you are approaching everything from a 3d point of view right. that ultimately ends up composited down the line pipeline somewhere, then, then that's something else. But well, let's talk about for uh, a second, like a bit yeah. more high, high level, y- you know, you've talked about your tradition or your trajectory from, um, uh, from um, electrical engineering, or, or was it industrial engineering, uh, into computer science? Computer science, sorry, into into filmmaking, and clearly you have like an in depth knowledge uh, and experience in in visual effects, uh, in various visual effects workflows. It seems like now I don't know if it's something new that you've started to kind of uh, dip into all these different software, or you've always always been kind of exploring different options and different things, but. I, I'm wondering if you think, first of all, you know, is that just natural kind of uh, extension of you being, you know, having this computer science background, always kind of having, you, seeing the computer as, as a, as an extra limb or kind of a, a sort of your, your, uh, an integral part of your tool set. Cause a lot of directors don't necessarily have that. And the other thing is how much, uh, uh, or how often do you, do you feel like, uh, how far is too far, you know, when it comes to diving into using computers for advantage? Like at what point would you say, where do you draw the line between directing and visual effects? Um, and like post? And post. I mean, I guess I think my answer is not interesting because I think I, I pretty much agree with most people that know visual effects and directing. Anything I can get in camera, I would absolutely love to get in camera. You know, whether that's dropping the camera, whether it's a swish pan, whether it's, you know, building a crazy model or a monster with slime coming off their face. Anything we can get in camera, I want to do in camera. But there's two things uh, that prohibit us from getting things in camera. One is we don't have the money to get something, right? We need this. We need to go to four locations today and we can only go to three. Can we throw up a green screen because this last location is only two shots, you know, and fake it. Um, Or we just can't afford to have a, you know, to build a puppet costume that's going to cost us $35,000 to do all this and get the actor and SAG and all those things when we can do it in post. Um, And then the other thing is time, which is, I think this is more where my skills lay. We are shooting a house and there's like a weird reflection on a window and they're going to spend 20 minutes moving the generator so they can move the HMIs so they can move this thing to get rid of that reflection. Mm -hmm. To me, that's like, no, why are we wasting 20 minutes of shooting time 
when we could so easily remove the reflection and then some producer will say, no, the, the camera's moving and then someone's going to be walking in front of that reflection. And then I say, yeah, we can roto that person out and yeah. we can track the thing. It's like very easy. And they're like, no, we don't have roto in the budget. And I'm like, uh, I will roto it. It's literally like seven frames of a person walking in front of a window. And I think there is a lot of live action producers when they hear the word roto they think that's expensive right here and they'd rather go spend an hour fixing something in camera that's far away from the camera in the background uh or e- even a weird reflection a weird this a weird that I, I mean i i do mainly commercials the past few years right and you know you have a video village where there's like four people from the client and three people from the agency and producers and everyone and they all feel like they are. They need to be there for a reason on set. They all flew from Chicago to, you know, Austin to film this thing. So they will say, "Oh, there's a reflection. Oh, we saw a C stand in the glasses. Oh, we, and to me, it's so frustrating because they're always. Everyone says, "Just do another take. Just do another take for a second. Just do another take." But doing another take takes five minutes, and then they'll find a different problem. Then another five minutes, another ten minutes, and now we lost our cool Steadicam shot because we don't have time to do it anymore. So I think. That is where my VFX knowledge is the most valuable as a director right. is saying, hey, we are going to take this and we are going to remove that. Or you know that phone screen where you thought the font wasn't big enough, so now you're having our motion graphics person re-render this whole thing so we can put it on the phone? It is so easy to just in After Effects to make that text a little bit bigger so we can read it. Right. Just let us move on, I promise you. And I think having the confidence to say, don't worry, trust me, this is going to be fine, is where my VFX background is, is the most helpful. Uh, but yeah, I guess what depresses me the most is seeing these video games, is seeing these kids in art school making renders that are just so much more beautiful than anything <laughs> I can shoot. And knowing that this technology exists and I can't use it, and then I'll call someone like you, who is busy and has all these big paying clients, and I, I'm trying to sell an agency on spending another $10,000 to do something, and then you look at it and you're like, eh, $10,000, we can't, we can't do it for that much, I'm sorry. Right. So that's where I get frustrated and where sometimes I think I for think the record, myself, I don't think I've ever said that to you. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, even Miss 2059, I think you did a few shots that I are honestly my favorite shots in that show but you said look you know if you want us to do seven establishing shots of ships in space yeah I'll do that for you but I'm not going to do 700 glows and rotos and all these things because we, we don't yeah time, I, we? right I, I I yeah for <laughs> I don't remember do yeah I think it was because we worked with two we had three vendors we had you then we had um, that you did kind of all the establishing shots. It takes place in space, yeah. and I wanted establishing shots in space. Um, and then we did, uh, we, we worked with this company called Fire VFX, and they did pretty much everything else a lot of green screen stuff, monster spa- things, various yeah. busy work things, and one really cool title sequence such shot. And then when we ran out of money, I did all the rest of the VFX. Oh, wow. And a lot of times, a lot of the VFX I did on that was a performance take I really liked, but we couldn't use it because it took place in a spaceship. So there was a lot of gla- like a lot of plexiglass and things and a lot of reflections. We saw crew and we saw this and everyone said, no, we can't use this shot. And I would, the producers and I, and I or the writers and I would say, the performance is so much better in this shot. 
And so I would just go and I and I would spend two days removing the reflection yeah. from the shot. You know, uh, um, and so but when you say you're frustrated that you see other people doing some work on on you know on that level, um, does it make you want to like dive into it more technically yourself, or is it more of the fact where you you're saying, well, you know, there's just so much that one person can do, and I'm already the director. If I spend too much of my time you know, diving into technical stuff too much, I'm going to miss out or potentially miss out on, on directing work or, you know, I feel like sometimes it's just a question that I sometimes ask myself is like, or I have in the past, is like how, <clears throat> how much of my time should I de de devote to, te you know, teaching myself new tools versus, you know, advancing my directing career or writing, for instance, you know, writing original content and stuff. That's, time is always the, yeah. uh, that kind of resource that, that sometimes you see uh, kind of goes away real quick, especially when you try to get into those technical, uh, you know, you want to teach yourself how to use Unreal Engine, for instance, in this case, you know, now. I, I also right. was trying to, I mean, I, I have, I downloaded it and I was playing with some packs that I down, you know, some, some level packs and kind of seeing what it can do in real time. And it's remarkable and it's amazing. Um, But I've also t spoke to people who said, yeah, but, it, you know, authoring and getting all those assets in there, you know, pr uh, pl making them, even though that's one of the things that the new demo was kind of uh, uh, touting you, uh, touting at us is the fact that you can just insert, insert objects directly out of ZBrush or something like that, which would really be a game changer. I mean, if, if it's really going to be as simple as that, then it's game over for a lot of uh, 3D softwares uh, where you're... Uh, right. Uh, but that seemed to be like one of the uh, one of the main uh, um, obstacles to you know that kind of make the learning curve so uh, so steep with uh, uh, with Unreal. So I wonder if that's something you yeah. you you how do you approach this? Like, do you? Well, I think you're absolutely right. There is. I'm going to say this is a fact. It might not be, but to me, it's a fact that if you want to succeed as a director writing and filming things are the most important things yeah. <laughs> there are and being good at visual effects is is mildly helpful but it is not gonna make your directing career even someone like Wes Ball who yeah. and Gareth Edwards who got their start in visual effects they did not become good directors because they're good VFX artists they came became good directors because they're good at pitching stories in their view and good at being passionate about how they would go out and film things in person. So I know that me figuring out Unreal Engine or figuring out how to get better at Maya or Substance Designer or whatever, aside from the fact that all those, a lot of those things cost money, yeah. is that I will never be able to put the time into them that will yield the results that will make me happy <laughs> with the things I shoot, you know? Um, but I really enjoy playing with it. And I guess I have two, two real quick stories. One is, uh, I was looking at lynda.com and, um, Noman workshop and all these places. I, I'm like addicted to tutorials and I found this tutorial series for Houdini and I was so excited about it. And I kind of watched the little previews of each lesson. And I realized that over the course of 26 lessons, like hours and hours and hours of time spent learning it. All you were learning was how to make a dust cloud that reacts to a dragon <laughs> flapping its wing or something. Yeah. And I was like, 
what? I, I'm going to spend three weeks learning how to make a dust cloud that I can actually just, you know, get some stock footage of a dust cloud yeah. and put somewhere. And it's nine out of 10 times, it's going to give me the same results. Totally. No way. If, if there is somebody who their entire job is to get some particles to look photorealistic, I'd rather spend my time shooting that yeah, stuff, totally. you know? Um, and that, 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 that's kind of one type of story, which made me think, oh no, this is, I can never invest enough time to be at a level, at a useful level. The other story is there's this guy on Twitter and something I was mentioned earlier is the VFX Twitter. There's a guy, his name is Action Movie Dad. He works for Red Giant now, but I think he used to work for ILM or someone. Okay. Or, uh, he kind of got famous off of these viral videos he made with his kids yeah, where I've seen them. You know, things are blowing up and, uh, and he does these tutorials where he goes to Mixamo, you know, or he finds these pre-recorded, um, he finds these pre-recorded motion capture files. He goes to Sketchfab and finds a free model uh, and he will bring it into Cinema 4D and then he'll bring it into Element. And he makes these incredible shots. Uh, if you go to Cheap Tricks on YouTube, um, look up Cheap Tricks. Yeah, so he makes all these things so fast. In one hour, he can make Sonic the Hedgehog photorealistically run down the street. Um, so here, this tutorial that you clicked on, Pixar's Onward Half Dad. Yeah. And again, these aren't like Marvel-level effects, but you can see that if he spent a week instead of an hour on them, they would be. And he does a lot of 3D stuff. He's not afraid of motion capture. He's not afraid of rigs. He's not afraid of... Roto wow. of planar camera mapping, any things like that. Um, he's literally shooting things on his iPhone that look like you would see in a movie, like a Disney movie. Yeah. You know? um, and his stuff, he did, he, he, you know, a lot of times he's plugging these Red Giant products, which is his job really is to create tutorials. But uh, he, he does crowd effects, all these things. And People like him make me realize, oh, wait, not every effect I want to do is going to take me, you know, months of learning. So those are kind of the two sides of, of the coin. Yeah. And I think if I could get to, I don't think I'll get to his level ever because he's, you know, professional VFX artist that's worked on big movies. But if I can get to his level of approaching problems or approaching shots and really having fun with it then I'll be happy. Even if all I do is make funny VFX videos with my daughter and me and occasionally remove a C-stand from a reflection on something I'm directing. What's the recent one that you did, the last one? How do I find um, it? You can go, they're all on my Vimeo page. Uh, or you can, I guess I've been tweeting them. Oh. None of them are on YouTube. Let's find So that. what I discovered is if I tweet at Red Giant, if I tweet at Boris, if I tweet at Maxon, people will actually respond to my tweet because VFX Twitter is a place where there aren't, people don't have millions of followers. I mean, there's Andrew Kramer and then there's everybody else and everybody else will actually respond to you. If you see their video on Vimeo, they will tell you, you you know, you can leave a comment and they'll tell you how they made things or what software they used. So that's awesome. The current thing that I'm really excited about is, seeing how easy, easily accessible VFX people are online. So yeah, some of the things you're scrolling past yeah. are not at all VFX related. I'm trying to see the ones, because I remember you see, I remember doing, uh, 
Oh, yeah. If you go up, some of them are just links and not images. Oh. I don't know. They're maybe on Instagram. If you, you see some of those images on the right. Um, I, somebody on Twitter had posted this funny video of themselves, and they mentioned that they used this free app to scan their head. So I scanned my, I got that yeah. app for my iPhone, and I scanned my head. And then I've just been obsessed with putting that. So you see that ball of heads? Yeah. That one actually I had made in Cinema 4D, but the one where I fly onto the couch, yeah. that one is all element 3D. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So it's literally you just pick an HDRI. So it's just, you know, especially when you only have one light mm-hmm. source, just the sunlit scene, just really easy to match the lighting on everything. Right. And, you know, there's there's some issues with the model especially. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there it's um, it's a cool tool, element 3D. I love it. Yeah, I love, I also think that, you know, the decision to kind of scan your head and use that model as a base for a lot of those things, it's really smart because people re- relate to that. I mean, heads are, um, you know, heads are, are uh, important parts of our body, probably the most um, visible uh, and uh, the most uh, communicate people, you know, like my last short film was all about faces. So that was a... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, that, that was so good, by the way. I mean, I know you know it. And I know you no, won all these festivals <laughs> and stuff. But when I saw it, I was thinking to myself, this is, it's like every scene is just, it's getting better and the effects are so good. Thank you. And the tone of how they meshed with the people and the story was weird. I don't know. In, in a good way, you know, like uncomfortable, not weird. Yeah, no, thank uh, you. I, I, I really think that's probably one of the films that I felt I've accomplished what I set out to do, uh, even though in the process, like after we finished shooting, I was I was really kind of, I divorced myself from the film for, for a little while. And, uh, that's how it always is. Everything I make, I think, is like total crap. And I'm usually only right about that 50% of the time. <laughs> well... Uh, I, I just randomly yeah. kind of went, went on your website to see some recent things because you're really doing so many things. It's hard to follow, to, to keep uh, track. Um, and I got to say, just from random clicking of, of recent stuff, it's all great. You know, where it's all, you know, it all, it all has a uh, great sense of timing. You know, clearly you're, you're editing those things in your head before you go out and shoot it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a good time to kind of talk a, bit, a little bit about, because uh, you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, VFX Twitter, uh, which I like, I, yeah. I like the sound of it. It's it's awesome. I might uh, I might do some breakdowns and stuff. Put them on Twitter too to see how how it works. But my Twitter presence is like, you know, cri- no, mine is mine is non-existent. Crickets, I mean, you I, know, I just yeah. But but Twitter is the one place where you can send someone a message, and unless they're incredibly famous, they they will probably see it and they might respond. You mentioned you had a podcast. I wanted to ask, I guess, just briefly. Um, yeah. Um, what else do you have? No, I mean, it, the question is really, <laughs> um, what's the, uh, you know, what's the, the, you know, underlying kind of, um, strategy behind, um, doing the podcast releasing, you also release those breakdowns of, uh, that show the process of, of the work. I guess the podcast too is, is related to filmmaking, um, what value do you find in in um, in creating this sort of auxiliary content for other filmmakers uh, around you? Uh, you know, what benefits do you you feel like you're getting out of them? And 
I know it's a, it's yeah, a big well, topic, I, but you know, it's kind of what. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess I enjoy talking about filmmaking. I, as a previous past engineer, every aspect of how it works is really interesting to me from the visuals to the lenses, to the performances, to the actors, to the business, to the financing, you know? Um, and so I love figuring that out. And when someone has their first movie is starring, you know, Justin Timberlake and they got $10 million. I want to know how they did it right. and what they said and what email they wrote and what emotions they tapped into. And so analyzing uh, a filmmaker's career is interesting to me and might as well uh, share whatever I learn with other people by, and having a, have an excuse to talk to them by having this podcast in terms of the breakdowns. I mean, it's the same thing. I love watching breakdowns. I love tutorials. I love, I'm a big fan of people explaining how they do their things. Many times I'm more interested in that than what they actually made. Like Project Greenlight, the last season. I don't know if you saw, it's a great example. I mean, the movie that the guy made is quite hard to watch, but his process of making it was fascinating to me. Yeah. And his interactions with the producer and the cast and the and everything. Um, and, uh, because I live in the commercial world a lot too, it's very, very, very competitive from my point of view to get a good commercial. And you're always pitching against very talented people that have made very cool things that have worked with very big brands and anything you can do to show people who you are and let people know how you think about things is very helpful. So putting out breakdowns, I'm not saying that that is getting me more jobs, but if someone is mildly interested in me or if it's down to me and a few other people and they go to my website and they say, oh, this person makes animatics for things before they shoot them and they make storyboards and this is how, how they do that. Um, and I think probably the best example of me using that strategy is my reel, which is it's old right. right now. It's a couple of years old. But my director's reel is me talking about director's reels and how useless they are. <laughs> And why I think they're useless and how hard it is to show the things you want to show in a director's reel. Because, you know, in a VFX reel, and a cinematography reel, it's really about the shots. You know, in an actor's reel, it's really about the performance. And you have a few different scenes. Right. In a director's reel, you want to show people that you can work with music and performance and visuals and celebrities and cars and all these different things. But just showing them one shot of each of those is useless because they can't tell if you can put, tell a story. Right. Or, put together a thought so it's it's a really challenging thing and my reel is basically me analyzing director's reels but using only footage from things i've directed <laughs> and i I'll got definitely check it out it's kind sounds- of a, a, a pretty good response to it and i and everyone is like oh that's such a creative creative way to make a reel which to me it's like an obvious way to make a reel i don't know what to put on my reel so i'm going to make a video about how i don't know what to put on my reel yeah and a lot of times, actually I actually heard this on a writing podcast, the Nerdist Writers panel, they said, a lot of times your problem is the solution, you know, especially in a creative yeah. field. So if you don't know what uh, is going to be in this box that you've been teasing as a mystery this entire show, maybe make the thing in the box the idea of what's going to be in the box or the fact that everyone's already taken everything out of the box or whatever. I mean, you know, Seven has like yeah, a perfect totally. Uh, box <laughs> uh, secret. But so to me, when I'm struggling with what I should do next in my career, I ask 
people or I talk to people with, about what they're doing next in their career. And then I release it online because I think it's important as a, in a, the creative industry just to put things out into the world as much as you can in a podcast. The judgment of it is very forgiving. Right. As opposed to if I made a short film that was bad, people would be like, oh, Oren's not a great director. If I make a podcast interview that's not interesting, they'll be like, yeah, that's whatever. Everyone has a podcast. Totally. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. I, that, that's why I do that stuff. Um, because it's, it's, I'm just work, working out my thoughts. And, uh, and I love feedback. I love pitching. I love talking to people about what I do. And I love getting their thoughts about it. So. Yeah, that's why. And I do it. if any, if at any point the you know the directing career doesn't uh, you know doesn't pan out for some reason, you can always you know become a podcast host and turn it into a full time uh, job or something. I don't know. Oh yeah, that's much more lucrative than going back to <laughs> being an engineer. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm yeah. I mean, I I think part of the inspiration for my podcast actually started from your podcast because I remember you posted about it and it was probably you know a little a little while before i started thinking about doing it myself uh but yeah I, I think it's very valuable and you know we'll in an in a future episode where we get we dive into that more i'll definitely ask you about you know other advantages and you know things that might have uh you know might have resulted from your podcast that you couldn't foresee and oh, yeah. stuff i have gotten jobs from it in, in case that's interesting but i will say for me, at least, the only reason I have a podcast is because I have a partner yeah. who compliments me in different ways. I'm pretty good at the technical stuff, um, and he's he's good at it too. But he is he's like the calendar guy. Like we're gonna record on this day, we're gonna edit on this by this day, we're gonna release on this yeah. day. If it was up to me, there would be five episodes that are released once a year. You know, well, that's good to hear. Um, I mean, but, uh, it's good to hear that you're not uh, you know some. Uh, crazy robot that uh, I mean I don't know why it's good to hear but no it's <laughs> I would be watching blender tutorials all day <laughs> it was up to me yeah no I think but he'll email me and say did you finish editing this episode yet is he is your partner uh, looking for another uh, side uh, podcast gig because uh, I could definitely use some help with uh, <laughs> making sure I roll no. them out more he gets really busy too he's also a director and he does a lot of commercials and narrative stuff but during the quarantine we've really been on each other's case to try to up our level a little that's bit that's great that's great i've you been know. the opposite i mean but also i have a, a six-month-old and uh and me and my wife are trying to keep the place neat and uh that's pretty much our day yeah. there because <laughs> it's uh it's tough. um cool great thank you so much for your time last uh, one last yeah thanks for having last me opportunity to plug your uh social media and website yeah, if people want to check out my my website's directed by oren.com and i'm on instagram at o kaplan that's where i post breakdowns and weird videos and way too many photos of my daughter i don't know if you know this as a new parent but you're supposed to not post more than one photo of your kid a week ideally oh yeah okay uh I think I'm... If you don't want people to hate you. I did have listeners of my podcast tell me they want to stop seeing pictures of my family and see more film-related things. Oh, really? Okay. So cool. I made an active choice to uh, post more film-related well, things. Well, to any, um, any listeners of my podcast, you're yeah. welcome to, to uh, voice your concerns or your uh, preferences or anything to that matter because I haven't heard from you in a while. So <laughs> uh, let me know now or whenever yeah um and my one one more time my podcast is just shoot it and we interview filmmakers about filmmaking awesome 
yeah, I'm, I'm uh, definitely going to check it out as well. And, uh, and uh, I hope to see you soon on the podcast too, where uh, I feel like we've just scraped the surface in terms of uh, relevant things for this podcast that we can talk about. Uh, but I appreciate your time. It's uh, 11.46 p.m. here. We started a bit late. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I know you have an early call, an early wake-up call probably because you're a parent just like me. So uh, Yeah, now I'm shooting it. tomorrow at 6 a.m. Oh yeah, what are you shooting? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, who knows? With you, I mean, could be shooting another. Yeah, I'm another... shooting. I want to do some drone stuff with my daughter, like because I really want to put in, um, you know, giant things. Oh yeah, walking totally. down the street and stuff. You know, typical drone CG stuff, but just why not? Right? Yep, why not? Um, okay, cool. Well, thanks for talking. All right, thank you so much. Have a good night. Catch you next time. And that was it. Episode 27 of the Post Post Podcast with Oren Kaplan. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, check out his website or check out our website, thepostpostpodcast.com, for show notes. And stay tuned for episode 28 with Hugo Geha. You know who he is. And if you don't, tune in because it's going to be a great episode. See you then. Bye.